Okay, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm um, 83, we looked last week, last couple of weeks, I guess, actually, uh, where we talked a little bit more about the um, enemy, and now we're going to look at what Asaph prays, and we're going to uh, try to answer the question, what is it that he's really wanting here? I hope he's not unclear, because there are some things that you read in the Bible, and you go, whoo, that would be rough, how could we pray anything like that. I mean, we're such a civilized and a genteel society, says the society that murdered 60-some million babies in their wombs since 1973. I mean, when we think about it, we read these things, they're just a little bit more upfront about it. They talk about what they want and what they expect and what life was like then. We tend to hide it, to cover it, use different names and different words, but we're actually no better than they are. And so as Asaph sees all of these people all around them, surrounding them, remember that map that we had, and as the enemy is getting so bold they don't even bother hiding anymore, you can look all around and you see the reflection, the glint of the sun off of a shield or a spear or a sword or a helmet. And you know what's going to happen if God doesn't intervene. You look around and you know, if you think things are bad now, you know what's going to happen if God doesn't stop them. And uh, Jehoshaphat and Asaph and these people that are there in Judah, they don't really have the resources to do anything about this at this particular time. Maybe they could have if they had had warning. Maybe they could have if they had had preparation. Maybe they could have if they would had some strategy. But it appears to me that by the time they really see and know what's going on, it's you know, a little bit late for all of this. So as Asaph talks about these things, he uh, makes some pretty bold statements beginning in verse 9. So Psalm 83, verse 9. Okay? Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Trash, in other words. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. There's your new baby name if you ever want to use that. And yes, their princes, even their leaders, like Zeba and Zelmuna. I even practice that. Uh, verse 12. Who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for our possessions. Now you remember a few verses up, we were clued into the fact that while this is an attack against the Jews, that wasn't really what they were aiming at. They were wanting to wipe out any memory, not only of the Jews, but the God that the Jews served. And even at this, you find that these princes of the enemy, what were they wanting to do? Take the pastures that belonged to God. In other words, they wanted to acquire land and resources that the Israelis had. Now, it's interesting because the same thing is going on today. Why would anybody want the land that Israel has? It's not particularly beautiful. It's not particularly 
uh, resourceful in things. Uh, it, it's interesting, even if you look over there now with the Arabs who want to overrun and get rid of Israel, they've even said, we want to drive the Jews into the sea. Why? It's not like oil is in the land of Israel. It's not. Saudi Arabia has much more. They're much more wealthy in terms of energy production and those type of things. What, what, what's the real deal? It's uh, kind of interesting if you go back to modern-day Israel and the Balfour Declaration by England in, I think it was 1917, Britain controlled that whole area. And they said, we'll set aside a certain area, they called it, uh, the United Nations called it the partition, where the Jews can come and it can be a homeland for them. Okay, Keep in mind that the land that they were given is smaller than the state of Rhode Island, for one thing. And the second thing is, it was land that nobody else wanted. When you hear Palestinians say, we want a homeland, we were driven out. That's what the nation of Jordan was supposed to be, a homeland for the Palestinians. Nobody else wanted that land. And that's the way it was in ancient times, too, when God sent them into that land. There was a lot of that land that they really didn't care about and really didn't use. But when the Jews started working it under the blessing of God, the same thing happened in 1948. All of a sudden, it became prime real estate. And it's interesting that this tiny nation, even today, of Israel, tiny nation, and uh, the land that it sets on that nobody else really wanted is one of the leading world economies and leading world militaries today. And uh, as soon as that Israeli flag with the Star of David was raised in May of 1948, there were, um, I may be wrong about this, but about five Arab nations immediately declared war on Israel. Okay? And there was an embargo against selling Israel arms or munitions or anything like that. We certainly didn't treat Israel in 1948 like we're treating Ukraine now. Israel was basically on their own. And yet they've survived to this day. And war after war and terrorist attacks and the United Nations. Oh my goodness, they are America haters and they are Israeli haters too. They have voted more against the United States and against Israel. And the world, one of the reasons that they hate America is because we stand with Israel. And so uh, all of that kind of stuff, you know, working on and boiling and moving, what's going on with all of that? It's because we're moving down toward prophecy. In the Old Testament, why did the people in Canaan and the Arabs and the Edomites and all of that, why did they hate the Jews? They were stirred up by the devil to hate them because they represented God. And the devil knew the prophecy was that the Messiah would come through the Jews. So what do you do? Wipe out the Jews, problem solved, Satan wins. Same thing is true now. The Bible is very clear that Jesus is going to come back as a Jew to rule and reign. Remember the prophecy that was given to uh, Joseph? He said, uh, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And uh, goes on to talk about he will reign on the throne of his father David. So what do we do? Same thing, same song, second verse. Wipe out the Jews, negate all of the promises and the covenants that God made. Satan wins and uh, the return of Jesus doesn't really matter. Uh, that's what he's trying to do. 
And so uh, there's always been a hatred of the Jew because of their covenant with God. And there's always been the feeling that if we can wipe them out, the covenants are nullified. Well, guess what? That is never going to happen. And so these people now are under attack. And uh, this satanic, demonic, inspired siege of Jerusalem and of Judah, those areas, and the frightening uh, position that the Jews are in stirs up Asaph under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pray a prayer like this. And I, I think basically we could sum up this prayer, even though it has some names that may be a little strange. And for some of you, probably most of you, they kind of ring a bell, but you're not exactly sure who they are. Uh, this whole thing is basically Asaph saying, Lord, you did it before do it again. You ever felt like that? We've seen times where we have seen a lot of people saved. We've seen lives changed. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen uh, a lot of stuff like that revival break out. And for those of us who have seen that, there's a stirring in our heart that says, like Asaph, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Except in this case, he's kind of coming at it from a more negative thing. Lord, you remember what you did to Midian. You remember what you did to all of these uh, strange people. What is in the world is he talking about? And what exactly is he asking God to do? Well, before we can really uh, understand this, we have to uh, ask the question, who are these people? And uh, this is Asaph looking back in time, particularly to the time of the judges. Now, you and I have this tendency to think that everything that happened in the book of Judges, we remember that verse that says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? Well, that's horrible. And there are some terrible times. And Judges tells the downward spiral of the nation of Israel after the death of Joshua. So when there's no more Moses and no more Joshua, then, oh, okay, now we can do anything that we want. And it kind of gives you the idea that they were sort of waiting on Joshua to die so that they could do anything that they wanted. Boy, what a way to say thank you for all that Joshua did for those people. You know, we all, we all tend to be unthankful uh, at times, and Israel certain, certainly was. And in the book of Judges, there are six different um, episodes, different movements, where Israel sins, and then they're taken into bondage. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer liberates them. They're free for a while, and then they do what? They fall back into sin. So the cycle starts all over again six different times. Someone said that what I just did would have been really wrong. Doesn't illustrate the book of Judges, you know, each one of those points like it's on a clock. It actually is more like going down a spring. Every time you go around, you go down a little bit more. And so you find in the book of Judges that even though they would go through that cycle and they would go through that time of repentance and deliverance, they kept going down a level, down a level, down a level, six different times. It was not a really good time, but let's also be honest, it wasn't all bad. There are heroes that come out of uh, the book of Judges. 
Gideon would be one, and that's what Asaph is making reference to. He's calling us back to the book of Judges, to that time when Gideon was called out. And so uh, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Judges, and let's read a few scriptures out of this before we really get back into what Asaph is saying. Let's go back to Judges 6, and uh, we'll start reading at verse 1, because that's where we find this man called Gideon, and the times that Asaph is making reference to, they're introduced to us. So Judges 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. No surprise there. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. It's that cycle we're talking about here. For seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. That's a summation of the times. That was where Gideon was born. That's what the times, that's what they were like when uh, he was born and when he was living. Let's skip down to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the uh, Aborite, while the son of Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. Just hit pause for a second. That's weird. You don't thresh wheat in the wine press. You usually thresh wheat in a high area, in an open area, so the wind can blow. And they would lay the wheat out there, the stalks and the heads of the wheat, and then they would, you know, just beat it and beat it and beat it and beat it and beat it until the chaff and the stalk was broken loose from the seed, which is what you wanted. Then they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the light chaff away and the heavier seeds the grain that they would use for making flour and other things would fall down how are you going to do that in a wine press a wine press is a little more secluded a little more hidden not quite as open well there's a reason the Midianites are prevailing against Israel we read and so every time they would thresh their wheat out and they would say hey we got 50 bushels this time and the Midianites would go hey thank you we'll take that and they would run off with it so they were kind of hiding now that is key to this story here that um, this guy, uh, his son Gideon is threshing the wheat in the wine press and, he, and it goes on to say what I just explained in order to hide it from the Midianites. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. <laughs> what does he call him? You mighty man of valor. Yeah, Gideon didn't believe it either. And so verse 13, Gideon said to them, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And so there's a little bit of bitterness and a little bit of blaming God. And yet we know from reading in here, this was uh, the fault of Israel because of their sin. Quit sinning, you don't have this problem, but they kept going into the cycles of sin. Go to Judges chapter 7. And go to verse 19, and we'll read down through verse 25. See if you recognize any names from Psalm 83. 
So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp of the beginning of the middle at the beginning of the middle watch just as they had uh, posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers very famous story here that were in their hands and then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army, the enemy army, ran and cried out and fled. Verse 22. When the 300 blew the trumpets... The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to uh, Beth, uh, Acacia, toward Zerorah, and as far as the border of Abel Malaah by the Tabath. Okay, mark that on your map. Verse 23. And the men of Israel gathered together from uh, places that are very difficult to pronounce, and did what? Pursued the Midianites. Now then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and they seized the watering places uh, as far as uh, Beth Barah and the Jordan and they captured the princes of the Midianites. Oh, well there's a name, Oreb. And they captured Zeb, the princes of the Midianites. They got their leaders. They got their future kings. They got their high-ranking officials, right? And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, proof of death, on the other side of the Jordan. Okay, isn't that interesting? So when... Asaph, in Psalm 83, is saying, do what you did to Oreb and Zeb. There you go. That's what he's talking about. He's saying to all of these people that are gathered around Jerusalem, that are gathered around ready to attack, to attack said, uh, take them out, Lord. Take them out. No mercy. Just take them out and kill them. So now you know who they were. They were princes. Look at uh, Sisera. Go to Judges chapter 4. Verses uh, 15 and following. And we'll hear a story about Sisera. Sisera was a high-ranking general in the uh, enemy army. And uh, the Bible says in Judges 4, 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Barak, by the way, is a good guy. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots 
and the army. And uh, he pursued them to Harashasheth uh, Hagoyim. Hagoyim is the Hebrew word for Gentile. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But Sisera, here's a great leader for you, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, we've seen that name, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into her tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. This is a brave guy, isn't he? But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him, and uh, I need a Tylenol when I read this, and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Boy, that's gruesome, isn't it? Gruesome when you think about it. That's what Asaph is saying. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Destroy the enemies that we have because, let's keep in mind, this is life or death. You know, we have a stand-your-ground law here that if somebody breaks into your house and you have a weapon, you have the right to shoot them. Why would you do such a barbaric thing? Because as far as you know, it's kill or be killed. What do our military do? They have certain rules of engagement when they are in a hostile situation. Why do they shoot the enemy? Because it's kill or be killed. That's the situation that Asaph says is in. These people don't want to be friends. These people that have surrounded them don't want to make nice with them. These people want to destroy them. It's kill or be killed. Please, God, do what you did to Sisera. Pretty gruesome when you read about it. But Asaph would say, no, it's not. It's what needs to be done. And so uh, we find Jabin uh, is mentioned not only there, but he's also mentioned in another place. He's a Canaanite king. In Judges 4, 23 and 24, <clears throat> So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So they just killed him in the same uh, kind of way. They pressed into him and they got closer and closer until he was assassinated. And then we have uh, Oreb, Zeb, and Zeba, and... Uh, 
uh, Zalmunna. And uh, these were Midianite leaders who were defeated again by Gideon. And in Judges chapter 7 verse 25, And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. We've already read that. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And then they pressed, uh, they pursued, pardon me, Midian, and uh, brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Going down to chapter 8, Judges 8, 11 and 12. We'll find the other two guys. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of uh, Nobah, and uh, another name that's very difficult, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. So get them while they are not expecting it. Get them while they think you can't do it. Very good strategy here. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them, and captured the two kings of Midian. Okay, so we had princes before with Oreb and Zeb. Now we've got kings, higher-ranking officials here. And uh, he threw all the army into a panic. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Kind of a treasure you know, type of thing that he could melt down and use. So um, anyway, that's all we'll read out of Judges. And if you go back and you kind of look and you see what Psalm 83 is saying, he's making reference to all of these things that are a little bit obscure to us. And so uh, I summarized it by saying, Asaph, what is he wanting? Well, it's kind of like this. His prayer is, first of all, deal with them swiftly. Whenever you come down upon them, come down upon them fast. Come down fast upon these people. Okay? We don't want this to be long. We don't want this to be drawn out. Israel didn't want this to be like uh, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia or what we did with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, not a 20 year war or anything like that. Deal with them and deal with them swiftly. Isn't that what you see when you look at all of these historical references? What happened to them? Jael's asleep and, uh, I mean, pardon me, Sisera is asleep and Jael comes up, walking softly, drives a tent peg into his head. It's just fast. Take them out fast is what he is saying. And that seems to be the uh, tenor and tone of all of that. Number two, deal with them specifically. Not just a general thing. You know, we used to have a saying where we would uh, say, Adam uh, almost doesn't count except in uh, horseshoes, hand grenades, and atom bombs. You ever say that? And uh, those are very kind of non-specific things, you know. Carpet bombing, we've heard people talk about that. Well, in this particular case, Asaph is praying that God would deal with these enemies in a very specific way. Don't let any of them out. Don't let any of them escape. Don't let any of them live to fight another day. Deal with each one of them personally and specifically. May they all be gone before the day is over. Take care of all of them. And, you know, sometimes we go after 
people that we think are the problem. We think that they're the head of the enemy. We think that they are the key to victory. And then sometimes we find out we didn't get the right person, that there was someone else, that there was somebody that was more important, more strategic, more powerful than them. And uh, then other times we find that when we take out what, we, uh, what is the actual head of the enemy, that there's somebody else ready to take them place. So what Asaph is saying is he wants all of them gone and he wants them to be taken care of down to the root. You know, you go in your flower bed and you work real hard in the hot sun and you pull up weeds only to find out the next time it rains you didn't get everything, that there were seeds that were left behind from the weeds that you pulled and now they've sprouted. Or maybe some of the roots remain and here they come and you've got to fight the battle all over again. I get the idea that Asaph is saying, Lord, we would rather not have to fight these people again. We would like for you to do what you did with these people before so that they're just taken care of and they never, ever appear again. And then he's saying, deal with them severely. There's no time for mercy, Lord. You're a kind and a gracious and a merciful Lord, and, uh, uh, but not here. Not here. Show mercy to us, your people, your covenant people that you love, but deal with them with all of your wrath, all of your fury, with everything you've got. Let them have it, Lord, because if you don't, they'll be back. If you don't, they will wipe us out. It's, again, sounds barbaric, but it's a kill or be killed situation. These people that have surrounded Judah and are coming in on them are going to do horrific things to their wives and to their children. They're not nice. There's no Geneva Convention. There is nobody here to say, uh, don't do any war crimes and be nice. As you do this, they're going to destroy them. And they're going to do horrific, unspeakable things to their wives and to their children. And the men are going to be uh, killed. And they even would have habits of doing things like um, impaling people. And then putting the pole they were impaled with up, you know, vertically so that everybody can see that gruesome sight of that person that is impaled and they let the body rot and let the vultures eat it and that is the sign of what they do. There were other times in these uh, cultures where they would kill people and then they would take their skulls and they would pile them up by the gates of the city in big, huge piles so that everybody that came in and out of the city, they got the message, don't mess with us. You mess with us, and what happened to them will happen to you. And so when Asaph is looking at this type of situation, he's looking almost from a, from a human standpoint of panic. A panic. Knowing, Lord, you've got to intervene or we are dead. Do to them what you have done before and deal with them uh, severely. Don't, don't mess around with all of this. And then he's also say, saying, deal with them spectacularly. Why would that be important? Because word is going to spread. They don't have YouTube. They don't have any, any way to video this and send it all around the world so that their message gets out. 
Asaph is saying, do to these people what you did back in the book of Judges. Why? Because when God intervened and when God routed the enemy in the book of Judges, it was so amazing, it was so incredible, it was so miraculous, the word spread. And the word spread, don't mess with Israel, and don't mess with Israel's God. Because what he does, he means business when he deals with people. And I think Asaph is saying that when you deal with these people, make it something, uh, what was it uh, that old song said, let's give them something to talk about? That's what he's saying here. Do something that is so spectacular that it glorifies you, it magnifies the Jews, and it makes the enemies of the Jews go, don't mess with them. You can't win against them. Did you hear what happened to... And then they could name the other names. Do something that is spectacular. And then the last thing that he seems to be saying is deal with them sociologically. Sociologically. This is not something where Asaph is saying, oh, if we could only all get along and then they could come in and they could live with us and they could help us and we could help them. They could learn from us and we could learn from them. And we could blend our religions together so that we could take the best of all of them and, oh, we could hold hands, have a Coke, and everything would be just wonderful and be beautiful. Asaph is saying, Lord, Deal with them in a sociological way. These are the people that were supposed to have been wiped out. These are the religions that were supposed to no longer exist. Now, Lord, we can't, but you can. We can't triumph over them. We can't get rid of all of them. This is bigger than us. We've waited too long. We didn't do everything you said we were supposed to do when we came into the land because it just didn't seem right and it just didn't seem nice and we were a little bit afraid and we thought we could make alliances with some of these people. We thought we could get along with some of these people and uh, now we find out that we can't. Oh God, if you don't intervene, well, we're toast. And so the God who is a covenant-keeping God is the one who works on their behalf and fights this battle for them, this battle that they could never win. And uh, he is indeed doing it to show that he is God and beside him there is none other. That deals with sociological things, doesn't it? Your religion failed. Your God failed. You were worshiping a false god. Your gods were empowered by demons who were already defeated by the God of Israel. Then the other thing sociologically that comes out is these are the chosen people of God. David would say that Israel is the apple of God's eye. That, that means you mess with the Jew, you're poking God in the eye. And the Jews may not be able to do anything. Think about the Holocaust in World War II. But God sure can. And Germany paid a high price for what they did to the Jews. And you can find throughout history, anybody that messes with Israel, anybody that messes with the Jew, they pay a high price. Had the privilege one time of listening to a preacher that back at the end of World War II, he had served in the British Army. He was part of the British occupation forces of Palestine. He was there 
when Israel became a nation in May of 1948. He was there when the Arabs were doing all of their things. He was there when uh, it looked like Israel was not going to survive because of all of the Arab nations that declared war on her, and yet Israel exists to this day. This particular man said, When I was born... It was said that the sun never sets on the British flag. You ever heard that? Because the British Empire was all around the world. By the time this man died, the British Empire had shrunk to just those islands in the North Sea. What happened between the time he was born and the... Oh, I guess when I met him, it was somewhere in the late 80s. What happened... Great Britain, that was once a friend to the Jew, that once was making the declaration, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, of a homeland for the Jews and all of that, they turned their back on Israel and became more of an enemy of Israel. And their empire shrunk back to nothing. You can look at nation after nation and situation after situation and you find the same thing. Could it be tonight that the only reason that God has not wiped our nation out with all of our wickedness is because in spite of all of that, we still are the best friend that Israel has on the entire earth. Pray for Israel. Pray for peace in Jerusalem. Pray for the Jews and their conversion. And pray for your government leaders that they don't turn their back on the Jews. Because I think that is where our destruction really lies. There's hope for America as long as we are supporting the Jew and supporting Israel. But if not, these strange names that we read here tonight, these strange names that we had trouble, at least I did, pronouncing, these strange situations that we go, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, I've read that. But it's not really, really familiar with us. That'll be our nation. These nations, the Midianites and these people ended up in the dustbin of human history. In the ash heap of human history. And there's nothing that says the same thing cannot happen to us. If we were to turn our backs on Israel. Pray for Israel. Pray for your leaders and their policy advisors. We must not turn our backs on the Jews. Can we pray together? Lord, as we look at all of these things that we read tonight, so strange to our modern minds, so strange to our modern geography and sociology, so strange when we think about religions that we are familiar with and all of these things that, that happened, and yet your word preserved all of this. And it's not only preserved in Judges, it's mentioned Hundreds and hundreds of years later 
in Psalm 83 as a warning to us. We think with our bombs, our guns, with our computers, with our artificial intelligence, we think about with our drones and all of these things that we are impenetrable. And I think in September, on September 11th, 2001, that was probably what most people thought. Nobody would dare invade us. And we look and we see what happened. And we see how easy it is and how vulnerable we really are. And that there are people out there that hate us and they hate you and they hate our support of Israel. And they don't fight wearing uniforms they don't fight in a conventional way. And we can be invaded. We can be decimated. We can be demoralized very easily. And so, Father, we pray for our nation tonight that first of all, we might repent. And that secondly, there might be a great awakening in our land and that people might be saved. We pray also for Jews all over the world in our own land as well as in the land of Israel. O oh Lord, that they might come to know their Messiah, the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we pray for our government, for our president, our vice president, our senators and the people that serve in Congress, the House of Representatives. We pray for governors and state legislators. We pray for our mayors and our city councils and all of the positions that... We vote on every few years that we don't even think about hardly. We pray, Lord, for our education system, and we pray for our children, and we pray for our teachers, and we pray for administrators, and we pray for our judges. And we ask, Father, that we would not turn our back on the Jew. May we stay strong and staunch in our support of the nation of Israel. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you for your time tonight. You've got your uh, prayer list and the uh, different things that are going on that you can pray about and things that you can be involved in. We're full swing into summer, aren't we? A lot of people traveling. And then it seems like uh, uh, lately, it seems like we've got people getting sick again. And some people getting well, and we thank the Lord for that. So pray for one another, and uh, we uh, will look forward to seeing you on Sunday. So if you need to leave, you certainly are free to do so. But uh, if you can, stay for a few minutes, take some time in the quietness, and get with your Father, and you might want to pray about what we talked about tonight. And you also certainly can uh, pray for the people that are on the uh, prayer list tonight. They need your prayers and uh, they appreciate them very, very much, okay? Thank you, God bless you, and